Good morning, all. Today's Bible readings come from the books of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 1 to 16. Just a bit of context. The Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in jail, and it was addressed to the people in Ephesus, a city now in modern Turkey. Ephesians 4, 1 to 16, titled Unity and Maturity in the Body of Christ. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with love one and another. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ appointed it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended high, higher than all the heavens, in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for work of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every winds of teachings and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Thanks, Wang. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Mark. I haven't met you. one of the pastors here. Great to have you with us. Uh, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray the prayer that the Apostle Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, so if you'd like to join with me, uh, let's pray together. Almighty God, we pray that out of your glorious riches, you might strengthen us with power through your Spirit, in our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all of the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, if you're anything like me then you probably prefer to be served rather than to serve. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I have a a one-year-old daughter at the moment. Her name's Alyssa. She's rather cute if you haven't met her. Uh, But she's at this stage in life where she's starting to wake up earlier and earlier and earlier every single week now. And the way that my wife Catherine and I manage that is that we take it in turns for who's going to get up and go and uh, take care of Alyssa uh, so that the other one can stay in bed. And 
every morning uh, when we first hear Alyssa making noise in her room, there is kind of a, our eyes are still closed and we make a bit of a mental check and we, we ask ourselves, is it my day today or is it my day? The prospect of what I've got to do, get up, change nappies, cook breakfast, play tea parties for an hour, all that sort of thing, uh, that is daunting to say the least. And so I, I love my daughter, I really do, but I'll be the first to admit that it gives me probably greater joy than it should when it's not my turn to get up, when it's Catherine's turn to get up and I get to just stay there and close my eyes for an extra 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, I much prefer to be served rather than to serve myself. How about you? Uh, I wonder if you've ever, ha- ever had the experience perhaps talking to somebody that you know is about to move house, maybe they've bought a new house. And in conversation, they happen to just ask you, what are you up to this weekend? And before you answer, your brain stops. And it thinks to itself, now, I've got to choose my words wisely here so that I can avoid, at all costs, carrying furniture for six hours on Saturday. And so you kind of do these mental gymnastics about how to navigate this conversation. I think that most of us, you see, don't like serving. Uh, And I don't think that's particularly surprising either because... We live in a culture where serving is quite often seen as punishment. You think back to your early days at at primary school and that sort of thing. If you got in trouble, one of the most common punishments I can certainly attest was having to go and pick up rubbish and papers on the quadrangle, serving other people. That was your punishment. Even our uh, criminal justice system sometimes places community service as the appropriate punishment for certain crimes. I think for a lot of us, often we feel that serving is kind of an an inconvenient diversion from how we'd actually prefer to spend our time if it was up to us. And so, most of us just tend to serve actually only when we've been forced to or when we've kind of been coerced into it. Uh, To a large extent, uh, how you feel when you've been called into service, it's going to depend on the cause that you're actually serving for, right? So if you think about, uh, if you think that what you're serving is a worthwhile cause, then you're more likely to actually serve willingly rather than begrudgingly. Just have a think about the, for instance, the different responses to conscription, to mandatory military service that happened in Australia's history. Uh, In World War II, when conscription was introduced, to a large extent, there was uh, enthusiasm, support. There was a willingness for people to be conscripted and to serve that cause because that, that war was perceived as a pretty imminent and immediate threat. You contrast that to, for instance, the Vietnam War when conscription was introduced into Australia. For that war, well, there was much more reluctance, much more cynicism towards that because most people didn't believe in the cause of the war in the first place. You see, what you believe about the cause that you're serving will determine your enthusiasm for serving. Uh, Today we're thinking about the topic of serving, the topic of service, because that is actually the third key activity that we believe flows out of our gospel identity as a church. And really the goal for us today is to think about our motivation for serving. Uh, My hope is that we will all uh, walk out of church today convinced not only of the the necessity of serving as Christians, but also of the goodness of serving as Christians, believing in the cause that we are serving for. Now, before we we start thinking about that, uh, I do want to give an acknowledgement up front that for the purposes of this sermon, what I'm really only going to be talking about is serving inside the church, serving within our church family. Uh, 
Please don't misunderstand me. Christians should undoubtedly be people who are marked by service in every aspect of their lives, their, their home, their workplace, their schools, the wider community. Christians should be servants in all of those spheres. But today, we're just thinking about serving within the church. Now, that being said, there will be a lot of what I'm talking about today that's going to be applicable across all those other contexts too. And so I trust that it will be helpful for that too. Well, that brings me to my first point saved into service as christians uh, being a christian in fact means that we have been saved into service Uh, two weeks ago uh, joel shared with us that we have been pursued to praise Uh, last week we saw that we have been loved in order to love others and this week i'm saying that we have been saved into service Uh, now where do i get that idea from Well, I think we're quite familiar with the idea that as Christians, we have been saved out of slavery to something, right? We've been saved out of slavery to sin. That's Christianity 101. Uh, Jesus says in John 8, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Uh, That's how Christians understand the natural state of humanity. We are enslaved to sin. We are in bondage to sin. We have no choice but to sin. But we also understand, of course, that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we are redeemed out of slavery to sin. Jesus buys us out of slavery with his precious blood, which he shed on the cross, and he sets us free from the guilt and the condemnation of sin. That's the message of the gospel, uh, that we are liberated. We are free now in Christ. You know that famous hymn by, by Charles Wesley, And Can It Be?, He describes this kind of idea of of being liberated in a really vivid picture. Uh, He describes it as someone who has been imprisoned in a dark dungeon uh, and they've been bound and shackled by sin. But when this person sees the light of the gospel, the dungeon is aflame with light. And, And Wesley writes that famous line, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth and followed thee. And we're really familiar with that idea that as Christians, the Christian life is one about freedom from slavery. We love it. We, we sing about it. We celebrate it. We love those Bible verses like Galatians 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Liberation, freedom. It's a really attractive picture of our salvation, isn't it? But what if I told you that for as much as the New Testament talks about our freedom now in Christ... It's also true that the New Testament says that we are actually still slaves. The New Testament says that we are not slaves to sin anymore, but now in Christ we are slaves to him. We are in fact slaves of Christ. Now you can see that idea in a few places really clearly in your New Testaments. Uh, And one of them is actually in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, chapter 6, verse 5. In chapter 6, Paul is addressing people who are actual real-life slaves. Uh, and he gives these instructions about how to conduct themselves and how to relate to their masters. And he tells them obey their ma- to obey their masters, not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. There you have it. Christians are slaves of Christ. And you can find that phrase, slaves of Christ, in a few other places in your Bibles. Now, I think that this is something that we don't actually talk about very often. And it's certainly not something that we sing and celebrate very often. Uh, And that's not particularly surprising uh, because 
being a slave doesn't sound particularly appealing, does it? Uh, it doesn't endear the Christian life to say that it is a life of slavery. Uh, partly the reason with that, partly our reluctance, is because of that historical and cultural baggage that the idea of slavery carries with it. Part of the reason, part of the reason probably as well, is that we live in a culture and live in a time that prizes personal freedom above just about everything else. Slavery is the last thing that people these days want to sign up for. Uh, But I tell you that this concept of being a slave to Christ, uh, it is unescapably there in the New Testament. And it's actually there probably quite a bit more than you realize it's there. Uh, To give you one example, uh, when the apostles introduce themselves at the beginning of their letters, uh, quite often they are going to introduce themselves as Paul or James or Peter, a servant of Christ. At least that's what it says in our English translations. But the actual word that they use is slaves. There are, there are about six different words in the Greek language that get translated as servant. There's only one word that means slave, and that's the word that they're using. They're introducing themselves as slaves of Christ. That's how the apostles understood their identity. And in fact, that's how they encouraged all Christians to understand their relationship to Jesus. He was their master, and they were his slaves. Now, I wonder as you sit there this morning whether you're starting to get a little bit uncomfortable with this idea. Um, If you are, then please let me reassure you that it sits a little bit uncomfortably with me too. Uh, Because when we talk about this idea of slavery, for most of us, it conjures up this kind of relatively distant and somewhat detached kind of revulsion to the idea. We know that slavery is a wicked and evil thing. But just, just entertain this thought for a minute. If you think that this is a hard truth for us to swallow here in Australia in the 21st century, just imagine how hard that truth was to swallow for the first audience who read about these things. These people who were living in the midst of actual slavery. Uh, The people who first read this, the people who wrote this, uh, they didn't have some kind of distant, foggy idea of what slavery was. They knew exactly what it was. It was all around them. They knew how offensive, how unappealing it would sound to the world to say, come to Christ and be his slave. And yet, in God's perfect wisdom, he has determined that this exact metaphor is part of the way that we are supposed to understand our relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, if you think about it, substituting a different word here would really rob the metaphor of of all of its power. If we use the word servant instead of the word slave, it doesn't quite explain the same kind of concept, does it? There's there's an obvious difference between being a servant and being a slave. Uh, Being a servant means you you are a hired hand. Uh, You've been given a job to do, and in exchange, you're going to earn a payment. Uh, But servants are still ultimately, they're, they're kind of independent, aren't they? Uh, they, servants can quit their job. They can take their life in a completely different direction if they want to. Uh, their master has no say over their life outside of those kind of nine to five hours, if you will. Uh, that's being a servant, but being a slave, that's something totally different. To be a slave means that you are completely owned by another person. It means that you have given up your rights, your, your privileges, your independence, It means that you rely entirely on your master for your well-being, for your provision, for your protection. And it means that your whole life 
becomes entirely devoted to your master's service. Your whole life becomes entirely about fulfilling the will of your master. Now, as you hear that, don't you think that that is a more accurate description of the Christian life than being a servant? As uncomfortable as this idea might sit with us, the truth is that if you are a Christian here today, you are a slave of Christ. You have been purchased, you have been redeemed and saved into his service. And so when you, as a Christian, you confess, Jesus is my Lord, you're actually relinquishing your rights. You're devoting yourself to his service. Now, I kind of want to pause there and say that there's a lot more that we could and probably should talk about in relation to this idea of slavery at this point. We could talk about how, in contrast to every other master in the world, Jesus is a, a good and a wise and a benevolent master. That would be worth talking about. We could talk about how being a slave to Jesus is not kind of some burdensome, oppressive thing, but it's actually the thing that gives us true freedom in life. We could talk about how Jesus himself also exemplifies this kind of attitude, this servant attitude. He models service to us. We could talk about all those things, uh, but there's really just one thing that I want you to grasp at this point. And it's that if you are a Christian, that means that service is not optional in your life. Service is integral. Do you get that? Service is not optional in your life if you are a Christian. It is integral. It's what you signed up for when you chose to follow Jesus. You surrendered control of your life. You laid aside your preferences and priorities. You are devoted now to his service. You've been saved into service. So let me ask you, as you sit here this morning, what is your current attitude towards service do you see service as integral to your life or is it optional is it something that you could take or leave depending on the season of life that you're in or is it something that you are committed to no matter what else is going on in your life what is your attitude towards service is it optional or integral well that brings me to my second point Uh, Doing the will of our master. Now, if we are slaves of Christ, if we are called to obey our master as his servants, well, then how does that actually work? Uh, How do we go about doing the will of our master? And specifically, as I mentioned, how does that work out in the local church? How does that play itself out? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, in those verses that we had read out for us, we have this picture of how serving our master Jesus is supposed to work in the local church. And again here, I'm not going to talk about everything that's in those verses. There's just too much in there. But there are a few key things that I want us to notice from Ephesians 4. And we'll pick it up from, uh, from verse 7 of Ephesians 4. Paul's just been talking about the unity that Christians experience, the oneness they have in Christ. And then in verse 7, he starts to talk about the differences that exist between individual Christians. So let's read from verse 7. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up 
until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. First thing that I want you to notice from this passage is that Jesus gives gifts to his people, the church. Uh, All that stuff in there about Jesus descending and ascending and leading captives and giving gifts, uh, it's a quote from, from Psalm 68. Uh, which is talking about this ancient custom where basically if you were a king in a battle and you won the battle, then you would share the spoils of your victory. You would share it out amongst your army. You'd say, here, have some of the benefits of of my military victory. And so everybody would end up kind of rewarded for your victory. And so in the same way, when Jesus ascends to heaven in victory as the ruling conquering king, he gives out some of the benefits of his victory in the form of gifts. You see, isn't Jesus a good master to serve, a master who gives us gifts? And what are these gifts that are listed here? Verse 11, uh, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. These are the gifts. And it's interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't list out particular abilities here. Uh, Sometimes we're used to thinking about gifts In terms of Jesus giving abilities, you know, he gives somebody the ability to teach, somebody the ability to encourage and so on. And the Bible does talk about gifts like that from time to time. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 12, gifts as abilities given to Christians to help one another. But here, the gifts aren't the abilities. uh, They're the actual people themselves. He doesn't give the ability to teach. He gives a teacher. So I just want to apply this idea for a moment because I think this is really valuable for us. On the, on the basis of this truth, that Jesus gives gifts to his church, you could sit there and legitimately pray and say, thank you, Lord Jesus, for the present of Rod Bailey that you have given to our church. Have you ever thought of Rod like that before? Jesus is risen to the right hand of God and he loves the local church of Wollongong Baptist. And so he has given us a a pastor and a teacher who is a a wise and God-fearing man. And I wonder how often we say to Jesus, thank you very much, Jesus, for a pastor who loves you and who wants to follow you and who is a present to us from you. You could legitimately pray those things. Now, I don't know how Rod would actually feel about me encouraging you to pray those kinds of prayers, but... As it turns out, Rod's on annual leave, so he can't stop me from encouraging you to do that today. Uh, The point is, though, that Jesus gives gifts to his church. And notice also the reason that Jesus does this, the reason Jesus gives gifts. It's that, that beautiful picture described at the end of that passage, verses 12 to 16. He gives gifts so that his body, the church, will be built up, so that we will grow and mature, so that we'll have unity. He gives gifts to his church so that his church will blossom so that it will bear fruit and be beautiful. Uh, The last thing that I want you to notice from these verses is that every part of the body must do its work. Did you notice that in verse 12? Who it is that's doing the the works of service, the works of ministry. Uh, Now, in verse 12, in some of your translations, it might say uh, the works of service. In some of your translations, it might say the work of ministry. There are obviously different words in our English translation, but it's the same word in the original Greek language, service and ministry, it's the same thing. So who's doing the serving? Who's doing the ministry? Well, it's the entire people of God, isn't it? The pastors and the teachers, etc., they are supposed to equip God's people to do the actual works of service, the work of ministry themselves. 
Now, that's interesting, isn't it? As you think about that this morning, who is it that's doing the ministry here at Wollongong Baptist? Is it the pastors? No. Is it the elders and deacons, maybe? No. Uh, The people of God are the ones who do the ministry at Wollongong Baptist. The saints, regular Christians, you sitting here right here today, are those who do ministry. And it's the same idea in, in verse 16, the last verse in the passage. Look there with me. It says, From him... The whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You see, what these verses are saying to us is that Jesus expects every Christian to be doing the work of serving. In really simple, clear terms, that is the will of God for you. Uh, I've shared with this church before about my love for the ridiculous sport that is American football. Uh, Now, on an American football team, if you've ever seen it, it's a pretty crazy game because at any one time, there are only 11 people who are actually on the field playing for their team at any one time. But do you know how many people are actually on the team in, in its entirety? There are 53 people on an American football team, yet only 11 on the field. What that means is that at any one time, 80% of the team are sitting on the bench, on the sidelines, doing nothing, not not contributing anything at all. Uh, But in God's church, you see, it is not supposed to be like that. It's not that 20% of the people do 100% of the work. No, no, no. According to Ephesians 4, 100% of the people are supposed to be doing the work. You see, the church is not like a team like that. It's more like a a human body uh, where every part has got to be functioning and contributing. You know, 80% of your body can't decide to just kind of come along for the ride and let that really keen, really eager 20% do all of the work. That's not how your body is designed to work. No, every single part of your body has a unique part, a unique role to play. And if it fails to contribute, well, then the entire person is hindered, right? If the lungs decide not to cooperate for a time, well, then how will the body breathe? If the the feet decide that they're not going to come along for the ride today, then how will the body go anywhere? You see, every single one of us in Christ's body needs to do this work of service, this work of ministry to build and strengthen the church. That is how our master Jesus designed his church to work. Now, I'd like for a little bit just to think about some of the implications of this uh, with you. Consider, for example, uh, what this truth means for the significance of our meeting together on a Sunday. I want you to imagine that Pastor Rod decided only to come to church, only to come here at Wollongong Baptist on a Sunday if he happened to be in town and if there wasn't anything that he'd rather be doing on a Sunday. Imagine that that was the only circumstance where he showed up here. Well, I think we'd be pretty shocked by that, wouldn't we? I think we would think that Rod was walking away from his responsibilities. We'd say, Rod, your primary responsibility is to be here doing ministry at Wollongong Baptist. You are the minister here. Well, couldn't we say the same thing about one another too? If you only happen to come here and to meet with one another when you don't have something else on, well, that would be a huge neglect of the job that Jesus has given you wouldn't it? We've all been given the job of being ministers here at Wollongong Baptist. And so you've got to be here to do your work of ministry. Even if you were to sit there and say, well, look, I I don't really want to go to church today because I don't think I would get much out of it. Well, that's not the point. 
the point is that you've got to be here to help others to get something out of a church service. You've got ministry to do when we gather together. I tell you, when I first understood this truth, it really transformed my attitude towards Sunday church services. I used to go along to church when I was a young Christian, and I was really eager and hungry to learn from the Word of God, and I would be so enthused about sitting under the Bible. I'd take tons of notes. I'd learn amazing things about Jesus, and then I'd go home. You see, my attitude towards church was it was all about me, and I was pretty happy with that. But when I understood this, well, that meant that I went to church with an amazing sense of purpose. I've got a job to do now. This is the most amazing hour of my week. And so I've got to find ways to serve and to build up the body of Christ. Jesus has given me a job to do here. How am I going to contribute to the strengthening of his body? Suddenly, this time together that we gather on a Sunday, it takes on an incredible significance. That's the first implication of this idea. Second implication for us to consider is that God's plan for our maturity in Christ is not, please hear me, God's plan for your maturity in Christ is not, okay, bold, capital letters, underline, italics, whatever, exclamation marks, God's plan for your maturity in Christ is not fundamentally about you having regular, personal, private, quiet times. Did you get that? I wonder, have you realized that God's plan for your growth, your spiritual maturity, it's not primarily about what you do when you are alone to satisfy your own spiritual hunger? Have you grasped that? Do you know that nowhere in Scripture is the practice of having a quiet time explicitly commanded? Now, that might sound weird or it might sound shocking to you uh, because of how ingrained perhaps that practice is in our evangelical churches. But it seems from Ephesians chapter 4 that God's primary plan for your spiritual growth is your serving other Christians in the church. That's how God's people arrive at spiritual maturity, by serving one another. Now, just to be clear, in case you mishear me, please, please don't stop reading and studying your Bibles. Uh, please don't stop having personal times of prayer. That's, that's good stuff. I'm not discouraging that. And you know how much harder, how much drier your life seems when you are out of that practice. So study God's word, meet with God. But if you're hungry to grow as a Christian, then get involved in serving. Don't expect that you are going to grow if you are just sitting on the sidelines, so to speak. Now, that might mean that you get involved in some kind of formal ministry here at church in some way. Maybe you choose to become a Sunday school teacher and to serve in that way. Uh, maybe you could get your name uh, as a volunteer on a roster in some capacity. Maybe you could, you could help out with the team that clean the church every couple of months. That would be a great way to serve. Uh, but it could also just mean that you develop habits of serving whilst you're at church, in a million small, practically unnoticeable ways. Uh, maybe it'll mean that when you arrive at church, you choose to park further up the street, even if there are spare parking spaces in the car park, so that somebody else can have that privilege. Uh, maybe it'll mean that you spend time at morning tea, chatting to and playing with somebody's kids, so that the parents of that kid can enjoy a quiet cup of tea. Uh, maybe it'll mean that you make a regular habit 
out of thanking every single week the people who serve at our church in those really kind of behind-the-scenes ways. For example, the sound, the projection people, the admin staff, that sort of thing. It could mean a million different things to be committed to serving. But God's plan for your growth and for the growth of his church is that each and every single one of us serves. That's how we do the will of our master. So let me close with a quick final point about sustainable service. Uh, I've, I've told you today that you should serve because you are a slave of Christ. You should serve because that is the will of God for you. You should serve because it is God's plan for his church that all people serve. All those things are true, but to be honest, the, the bottom line, when you boil it all down, is that our service must always and only be a response to Christ's service of us in the gospel. If your service is for any other reason, if it's anything else other than a response to Christ's service of you, then I tell you, your service is not pleasing to God. Uh, If you serve out of a sense of obligation, if you serve out of a sense of guilt, if you serve out of the sheer force of somebody pushing you into it, Well, God sees through those things as kind of the empty religion that they are. It's not pleasing to God to serve in those ways. And it's not sustainable either. Because all of those faulty kind of reasons that you can have for serving God, eventually those things will fade. And so will your motivation for service. The the only God-pleasing and sustainable reason, the only God-pleasing and sustainable motivation for service is that in the gospel, Christ first served us. Christ gave his life to ransom us from slavery. He shed his blood to redeem us, to make us his own. And so his service of us, that should melt our hearts and cause us to serve others out of sheer gratitude to him. So friends, please don't serve your master Jesus for any other reason than the love he has shown you in the gospel. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve. To be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. May our hearts melt from that amazing truth of God's love shown for us in Christ. Let's pray. Kind master, we thank you that you have saved us out of slavery to sin and that now we have the privilege of belonging to you, our good, wise, benevolent, kind master. Lord, we want to serve you. We want to do your will. We want to be obedient and pleasing to you. And so please, Father, instill in us an immense gratitude for the love that you've shown us in the gospel. Please melt our hearts from this amazing truth so that we would be willing, joyful, humble, obedient servants in the name of Jesus. We ask in his precious name. Amen.